Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to VMB, the voice of Manhattan business, brought to you by the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. I'm your host, Bruce Hurwitz. You can find me on the web at hsstaffing.com. I hope everyone will be able to join me at noon next Wednesday when my guest will be Robert Picone from Kepler Title Agency. We will be discussing Title Insurance 101. To learn about all future shows, please visit our website, thevoiceofmanhattanbusiness.com. And please remember to visit the events page on the Chamber's website, manhattancc.org, to learn about upcoming events on the Chamber's calendar. I am delighted to be joined today by Charlie Eichner from The Elements of Writing. We will be discussing how neuroscience teaches about the best writing strategies. Please remember the opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. If you have any questions, feel free to call in. The number is 805-243-1301 and dial 1 so I know you have a question. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bruce. I'm glad you were able to join us. And to begin, why don't you tell us about yourself and your company? Well, I am a longtime writer and teacher. I was a journalist, and then I was an academic for many years teaching political science. And about 12 years ago, I broke away to work exclusively on writing, working on books about baseball and diplomacy and civil rights. And along that way, I started teaching again. This time I started teaching writing at Yale and at SUNY Purchase. And I realized that we really needed a much more updated understanding of what the whole writing process is all about. So I set out to read everything I could get my hands on about learning and the brain. And I tried to figure out how to apply that research, how to apply those learnings about, uh, about how the mind works to the writing process. And the result was the elements of writing. And the elements of writing is uh, basically a writing instruction company. I give seminars all over the country. I do webinars. I sell books. And I'm developing some more online products, instructional videos, and software as well. Now, what I like about our topic is that we're discussing how neuroscience teaches about the best writing strategies and not what neuroscience teaches. But before we get to that, define for us neuroscience. Well, neuroscience is really the study of the brain. or it's And, and when we think about the brain, we think of that three-pound lump of gray matter that's kind of like jello uh, in, your, in your skull. But it also includes your whole body. The whole uh, spine goes down and it connects to the rest of the, of the nervous system. Um, but what neuroscience is all about is how people operate in the world, how they perceive the world, how they react, how they think or how they don't think or how they think automatically before their much more conscious thought process has a chance to catch up. And when we understand the brain, we really understand how people experience the world. And it's that knowledge that I really aim to use to help people write better much faster than they would otherwise. As you can gather, I like to get a lot of definitions up front. That way there, mm-hmm. everybody's on the same page, 
And yep. so since our title is, or subject is how neuroscience teaches about uh, the best writing strategies, what do you mean by writing strategies? Well, really, writing strategies is, uh, think about writing as a process. Think about it as a project. You know, you sit down and you want to convey something to an audience, usually an unknown audience, an invisible audience. And so you're, you're talking to somebody, and the question is, what's the best way to reach them? What's the best way to, uh, to find them where they are, give them the information they need, give them the emotional experience you want them to have, give them the takeaways that you want them to have? And so a writing strategy is, is anything from how do you put together a sentence or how do you put together a paragraph to much larger kind of storytelling strategies or uh, analysis or editing, just anything that goes into the process of putting words down on paper or words on the screen. Let me ask you something. This is, uh, I don't think it's off topic, but when you're writing, mm-hmm. I know for me, when mm-hmm. I'm writing for something that's going to be read, I'll write one way, and when I'm writing for something that's going to be heard, I'll write a different way. Right. Do you? Yeah. Is I mean, that the norm, the or is that the mistake people make by not doing that? Well, it's it's kind of both. I mean, um, in in one sense, it's better because when we're having a conversation, especially if we are together, you know, we're sitting across a table from each other at a cafe. Um, and I'm explaining something, and I see that you have a puzzled look on your face, I might back up and repeat myself or say the same thing over again or give you an example or try a different example or just say, oh, never mind, it doesn't matter, let's move on to the next topic. If we're together, or even if I'm talking to you on the phone like I am now, I have a chance to get some kind of immediate feedback, and so I'm going to change my tax uh, according to what feedback I get. With writing for paper, you know, writing in a kind of more permanent way where you're putting something down and then somebody at another time or place is going to read it, you don't get that feedback. So you need to be much more disciplined in what you do. Unfortunately, what gets lost in the process is the conversational tone. And because of the way that people learn how to write originally in school, which is a very formal, almost academic way from junior high school on, Um, Because of the formal way they learn to write, they lose their conversational feel. So the way I think about it is you should think about writing as a conversation. You know, you're, you're trying to connect. You're trying to convey something. You're trying to share something with your audience. But at the same time, you need to cut out all of the repetition. You need to cut out all of the see what I means and so on. So it's kind of, you know, the best writing is conversational, but it, removes a lot of the ticks that uh you know that com- that face to face conversation has well, the one that gets to me is you know you know, five you know what i'm saying you know. <laughs> you know yeah you know yeah, yeah. Or, or like or the current now, the current favorite is so people start every sentence with so now this is true but at least you know it's funny i got to uh, argue with you a, a little bit the letters that I get from people, and we're talking here college graduates, mm-hmm. they don't know how to write. They don't teach writing anymore. Yeah. I've gotten no. cover letters attached to resumes, and I'm saying, you know, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Some I mean, of them will even use the Twitter 
Yeah, I mean, we live in a really funny time because we live in a funny time because, um, you know, these are the best of times and the worst of times. On, on the one hand, uh, you're right. The, the level of writing instruction uh, can be very poor, not only in high school, but in college as well. And I think the reason that it's poor is that they're using really a 19th century model. They're using a model that, you know, that was uh, created when very few people went to college, when people uh, were simply being trained to work in a factory or, or work in some kind of, um, you know, uh, physical labor. And, um, and so the people who did take the writing class were, were considered to be the, uh, you know, the academics, you know, the fast trackers, the people who are on the academic track. Um, and so uh, the, the style that we teach writing is really old-fashioned. It doesn't have anything to do with the realities of everyday writing needs. Um, on the other, so that's the worst of times. You know, we're using an outmoded approach to teaching writing, and we're not doing it enough. It's kind of like the old Woody Allen line, uh, you know, the food is terrible and in such small portions. Um, but these are the best of times as well, because what I see, you know, when I go on to social media and when I get into email exchanges with friends and so forth, is I see some people doing some amazingly uh, creative and thoughtful work that, you know, just 10, 20 years ago, people didn't have the chance to express themselves for an audience. So if something happens in politics or if something happens with a great movie or sports or or fashion or any other thing that people are interested in and they want to share it with their friends on Facebook. I see people write these essays that are as long as an op-ed article or a magazine article and that are oftentimes just as thoughtful as anything you'll read in a newspaper or magazine. So, you know, the for, for the first time in human history, anybody can write and find an audience. The The old-fashioned system where there's gatekeepers to newspapers and magazines and publishing the old gatekeepers are still there but they don't have complete control over who gets to express themselves and how and for what audience so we're really in the middle of uh, a, a really wonderful writing renaissance now at the same time people like you are seeing badly written emails and letters like like you are so it's it's a really mixed bag it's an interesting time now you in the title, we're talking about best writing strategies, but right. best is a subjective term. Because what one person may consider something to be an excellent strategy, and somebody else may dismiss, dismiss it out of hand. What for you is the criteria for being best? Well, first of all, I think you're right. There, there's a lot of subjectivity to it, but there's also a lot of criteria that people across the board would agree on. And once you start looking at particular texts, people would say, oh, yeah, I get it. I see why you think this is better than that. Uh, so what are those criteria? I think number one is clarity. And the author, the writer, needs to essentially take the reader on a tour. And just like when you're on a tour of a new city, you're visiting Paris or you're visiting London or Buenos Aires or someplace, the tour guide points things out and says, oh, did you notice that building? Well, that was built in such and such a period by such and such an architect. And, oh, over here is, here's the river where the industrial base of the city started. At, at the very best, the writer acts as a tour guide, pointing things out to the reader that 
the reader might probably want to know. Um, but there's other elements of good writing, too, besides clarity. Uh, and I think the other element, the, the other kind of critical element is drama. And I don't mean that everything has to be a story. You know, if you're doing an analysis of how SEO marketing works, you don't need to have a big drama with a hero and a, and a hero's journey and so forth. But you do need to build into it uh, a, a kind of tempo and a process of discovery and setup and surprise and all of those tools of storytelling to engage the reader. In fact, if you want to think about what the most effective writing is, think of those two dimensions, clarity and drama. And the, the pieces that have both high clarity and high drama, they're the ones that for pretty much any audience, or at least any audience that has an interest in the topic, for any audience, uh, you know, they're going to be effective. You're going to connect with that reader. You're going to leave the reader satisfied and informed, and everybody's going to be better off. Now that we've clarified the topic, explain yep. to us how neuroscience relates to writing. Well, neuroscience, of course, is the, is the science of how the brain works or how cognition operates. And the way that I like to think about it, the way that I like to phrase it is uh, simply with a question, which is, what does the brain want? Um, or conversely, what does the brain not want? And the brain wants about a half dozen things on a regular basis, whatever the brain is up to, whether it's eating or visiting with a friend or watching a ball game or reading a book, whatever it is, the brain is looking for a number of things. First of all, the brain is looking for clarity, which we've already discussed. The brain is looking for action and suspense. Uh, suspense keeps uh, the, the person engaged because you're always trying to find out what's going to happen next. The brain also wants a sensory experience. We are after all, animals, we're sensory creatures, and we're constantly kind of turned on. We're energized when there is a, when there is a sense of seeing something, feeling something, hearing something. And so the more that you can kind of inject those senses into the writing, the better you are. Um, a couple other things real quickly. The brain loves questions. If I were to tell you something, just kind of assert, hey, Bruce, you need to understand the following, X, Y, Z. There's a tendency for, for your brain or for anybody's brain to kind of resist that a little bit because I'm essentially forcing myself on you or I'm forcing my thoughts on you. Whereas if, whereas if I asked you a question, your brain goes into kind of search mode. Your brain is, in essence, um, a Google search engine. And so if I say, hey, brain, hey, uh, Bruce, what are, the, you know, what are the chances are that you know, your enjoyment of your meal this morning had to do with the setting and whether it was comfortable and light and clean or not. Your mind would go into search mode and you'd be thinking of experiences and you would be much more willing to kind of take in that thought than if I told you, Bruce, the, the setting matters a lot to your enjoyment of a meal. Um, one last thing I'll mention, two last things. One is closure. Uh, the brain cannot stand to have things left open. Um, th th there is a great desire for suspense, but the suspense has to be solved the whole, before the whole process is closed, or else there's going to there's be this nagging kind of dissatisfaction. And then last but not least, maybe I should have stated this first, actually, but last but not least for our conversation is the brain, uh, the brain loves people. Um, 
the brain has a tendency to kind of convert everything in, into human characteristics. It's, it's called anthropocentrism. You know, we are a species that likes to look at ourselves. And that's why characters like Mickey Mouse or, uh, you know, other cartoons, um, and that's why cats and dogs and other pets and so forth are so satisfying to us because we attribute human qualities to them. So the more that you can express things in human terms, in terms of what ordinary people are experiencing or even extraordinary people are experiencing, the better you're going to be able to connect with your audience. So those are a few things that that, uh, relate to brain science. Here I thought the only thing that the brain needed was oxygen. Shows you what I know. (laughs) (laughs) And energy. It needs glucose, you know. That's stuff. Now, just a reminder, you're listening to the Voice of Manhattan Business. My guest today is Charlie Eichner from the Elements of Writing, and we are discussing how neuroscience teaches about the best writing strategies. If you have any questions, feel free to call in. The number is 805-243-1301, and dial 1 so I know you have a question. Please remember the opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or positions of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce. Charlie, can the brain be manipulated, for example, by incorporating photos into a written presentation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I would argue that, you know, manipulation sounds like a dirty word, and, and, uh, and oftentimes people do manipulate each other with words. But I would argue that all communication is a form of manipulation, and that's not such a bad thing. And I mean it it in this way, that if I'm trying to persuade you of something, I'm trying to change your mind. I'm trying to put something in your mind that might not be there now. And I'm trying to make you think and feel about it in a different way, or if not a different way, in a way that aligns with my goals and, and my interests. So all of writing, all of communication is a form of manipulation. I'm trying to change your view of the world. Now, it might not be a big deal if I'm a news reporter uh, and I'm simply reporting on yesterday's uh, city council meeting and I'm simply saying that the council rejected the mayor's proposal for this or that and there's no real editorial content, then the level of manipulation or the level of you know, my desire to control you is, is limited. But in virtually all communications, uh, what we're doing is we're saying, pay attention to this, don't pay attention to that. And in, in that sense, everything is manipulation. And the question then becomes, what's the intent? Is it, a benign, uh, is it a benign intent? Am I trying to give you the information? Am I trying to give you perspectives in a way that enlarge your own understanding of things and give you more tools and more power over your world? Or am I trying to manipulate you in the sense of shutting down your thinking so that you will not consider the full range of, uh, of issues or concerns that matter? And, and, of course, there's a whole spectrum of communications from, you know, very simple, uh, transparent, open, kind of here's what I think, please consider it on the one hand, to, uh, you know, really shutting down the thinking process on the other hand. Let's talk a little bit, not just about the verbiage, but the way right. something is presented. And let's say that it is written mm-hmm. so you're getting it on paper. And a few weeks ago, right. I interviewed a um, a printer, Marilyn Dolan, about, uh, I believe that 
the title of the uh, interview was The Haptic Brain. And we were discussing mm. the importance of the feel of paper, of a business card, of a brochure, yep. and how the brain mm-hmm. re- reacts to it. Talk to yeah. us about that from the perspective of neuroscience as you see it. Yeah, well, I think, you know, what I try to tell my students is that all writing and all reading is a physical experience. You know, when you see somebody kind of curled up in a, in a chair reading a book and they're completely lost, they're completely immersed in a novel or a history book or whatever, um, it might not look that a whole lot physical is going on, but in fact, their bodies and their minds, their physical beings are, are very much engaged at every level. Um, their, their feeling, their sense of attention, their, uh, you know, their, their experience of light, their experience of sound and so forth. When you put a sound in a piece of writing, you know, kapow, it actually taps into the sound parts of the brain, you know, and you experience the kapow the same way or a very similar way that you would experience if an actual kapow was going on. Um, and there's been lots of research on this. It's, um, but when when people are getting together and when one person smiles or crosses their legs or puts their hands behind their head, the other one tends to do the same thing. Um, and people tend to have a great amount of empathy and to kind of feel what another person is feeling. And the same thing happens through writing. So uh, So writing is a very physical process. Now, to your question about the physical nature of the paper, um, I, I think all of us who grew up at a certain time, that is to say before, you know, 10 years ago or so, our experience of writing was exclusively with paper. And, and we had a different experience with kind of folding the newspaper when we were on the subway than we did opening a big fat textbook on biology in school or, you know, folding back the uh, paperback novel or something like that. And these are very sensory experiences, and, and we have this kind of Proustian moment, this Proustian reverie, you know, when we encounter certain kinds of paper um, and when we see ink kind of splotched on the paper in, in different ways. Layout, formatting is incredibly important to the overall experience. You know, and another thing that's Im- important to the experience is your ability to kind of manipulate the object in your hand. Um, I, when I read, especially when I read something that's challenging, I have a pencil in my hand and I kind of mark up as I go. I put little tabloid headlines in the margins to remind myself of the ideas. I can go back and flip through the book. You can't flip through an ebook in quite the same way. You can, uh, you know, you can flip through a paper, a paper bound book or a pulp book. Um, and, and so there's all kinds of ways that the physical nature of reading, the physical experience of reading, uh, is an important part of the whole an important part of the whole process, and you know if your eyes are strained, you're going to be reading it differently. Your attention is going to be different. You're going to be if if you're straining to read something on a screen or even on a page, whatever, um, you have less kind of mental energy. You have less brain energy to focus on the and to get lost into the flow of the story or the article or the analysis of whatever you're doing. So I, I like to teach, you know, my seminars and my students that everything about writing is physical and as the producer of a physical product, you need to think about how the person on the other end, the reader, the audience, is going to be experiencing it. And that's why uh, it's so important to, for example, mix 
uh, short and long expressions. And, you know, because uh, if you go short, 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 short without longer expressions, the reader gets a sense of kind of uh, water torture, drip, drip, drip. Uh, and it's also important to move back and forth, or yo-yo, as I say, uh, to move back and forth between scene and summary. People need action. We are an action-oriented species. Actually, all species are action-oriented in their own way. Um, so we need action, but we also need a break. We need a chance to kind of step back and look at the big picture and get a summary uh, and to get reoriented before the next burst of action happens. So this is all to say that your guest was completely right. Uh, reading is a physical experience, and it goes from you know the words that are on the page or on the screen to the format that they are presented. And whether it's all gray space or a lot of white space and whether there's lots of subtitles, whether it's in color, whether it's heavy paper or thin paper, um, all of these things have a big impact on the way people consume uh, the words. Now, when I said, thank you for that, by the way. When I said yep. uh, manipulate a few yep. minutes ago in a previous question, I was not looking at it in a negative sense. Now I want okay. to give you an, a negative example. I grew up in okay. Canada. I don't know if it's this was the same thing here in the States, but in Canada decades ago, if you went to a movie, films were doctored so that every X number of frames of the film was a picture of food or drink, and that would mm -hmm. subconsciously encourage or entice you to go and buy something mm -hmm. at the refreshment stand. Now, when it was yeah. discovered, the practice was outlawed. I'm assuming it was ruled in an ethical business practice. Mm -hmm. But that was a way to negatively manipulate the brain. So is this right. an example of the power of neuroscience, that if you understand the yeah, brain, I, you can do things like this? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, um, you know, the brain can only focus on a few things at a time. You know, the old, the old uh, rule of thumb, which turns out not to be correct, the old rule of thumb was that, uh, the brain can hold seven ideas in the mind at a time. But it's actually more like one to three ideas at a time. And so anytime you do something to, uh, to kind of distract the brain, to take the brain away from one focus and put it on another focus, um, you are manipulating. And then, as I said before, that can be, it, it can be a totally benign form of manipulation or it could be a more negative form of manipulation. And, of course, you know, um, TV and movies all the time use product placement as a way of as a way of uh, manipulating us. You know, when we see hit programs about uh, artists and so forth on TV, and you see Apple computers, they are essentially I mean not essentially they are advertising for Apple computers, and they're they're sending a message that that hip artistic creative types use Apple computers, um, and you know, the whole selfie craze, you might remember a couple of years ago at the Academy Awards, Ellen DeGeneres got into a, a picture on the stage. Uh, she did a selfie with, you know, like eight or ten other people, and it went viral. Well, you know, that whole thing was set up by Samsung, which was saved money at the time, and that was part of, that was by embedding that product into the content, into the, you know, the main subject of, of the show, they were able to kind of push their product. So it's not just 
you know, splicing in some pictures of Coca-Cola or something like that into a screen. There's all kinds of ways that you can frame images and that you can, you know, use, you know, punchy words and repeat words and use related words that kind of tap the same network in the brain. And, uh, and people on Madison Avenue, people in the advertising industry are well aware of all these techniques and they write books to each other about it and they do seminars to each other about it. It's a big part of, it's a big part of what they do. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that more and more our minds are totally overwhelmed by information and we're overwhelmed by this kind of, inform- by this kind of exploitation, by this kind of manipulation as well. And so when we're overwhelmed by lots of people trying to uh, manipulate us, it doesn't always take. So there's a, there's a little bit of a check and balance there. But um, nonetheless, anytime you look at TV, uh, anytime you look at a, an opinion journal, uh, you are looking at people who are trying to kind of push you to, to act or believe one way as opposed to another way. I have become addicted to old mysteries television mm. mysteries, you know, half-hour shows mm-hmm. on, uh, and I, you can get them on uh, YouTube. And right. there's one, I forget the name of it. doesn't matter. They have a character who runs a tobacco store. And mm-hmm. in the, about halfway through the show, the main characters will go to the tobacco, what's it called, a tobaccoist, and buy right. cigarettes or tobacco Name brands yep. of the sponsor of the show. Yep. And it, it, it is so blatant. It, it's funny. Yep. It's actually funny. Yeah. No, it's, the fact that they're talking about yeah. how good cigarettes are for you, that's beside the point. But uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it's what you're saying, but on steroids. Yeah, absolutely. Last question. And, and, yeah, and with less of the subtlety, yeah. Yeah. Give us an example. Give us a quick case study of how understanding mm-hmm. neuroscience can help a business owner produce effective marketing materials, because at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. Right. Well, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with what I think is kind of the secret to all good communication, and it's very simple. It's what I call the golden rule of writing. It could also be called the golden rule of cognition or the golden rule of communication. But in, the, in any event, what the research shows us is that the human mind really kind of fastens on two things. First of all, a journey. Uh, human beings love to be on journeys. And I mean that in a metaphorical sense as well as the, the kind of literal sense. You know, we love to take ourselves, to transport ourselves from one place to another. So that's finding number one. Finding number two is we pay attention to the beginnings and endings more than we pay attention to anything else. And we remember the beginnings and endings more than anything else. You think of that as a, as a journey. Every journey has a beginning and ending. So the golden rule of writing says make everything a journey, every sentence, every paragraph, every section, every whole piece, make it into a journey. Take the reader from one distinct place to another different place. That's part one. And in part two of the golden rule, is start strong, finish strong. Um, And by starting strong, I mean, you know, bring the reader right into things. Say who does what, or at least set up the context and then get to who does what right away. And then end with some kind of closure, some some kind of solving of the puzzle. 
some kind of takeaway that people will understand. And there's some very simple techniques you can use to apply the golden rule, make everything a journey, start strong, finish strong, to every sentence you write, every paragraph you write, every section you write, so that it becomes a kind of nested doll, you know, one of those Russian dolls where every element has this kind of coherence to it and they combine to give the whole piece a lot of coherence and drama and definition at the same time. And this is all from neuroscience. You know, you can look at eye tracking studies on, on the web, you know, that, that show where the eye moves on the screen when you're, when you're reading something or when you're looking at a web page. And, and what they all show is that the reader is trying to find, the viewer is trying to find out, okay, where does this thing begin? How do I orient myself? And how does it all turn out? What's the, you know, what's the takeaway? What, what do I need to know once I'm finished looking at this thing? And if you understand that, you know, the question I ask my students is, if the reader pays most attention to the beginnings and endings of things, where should you put the stuff that you want the reader to, to take away? And the obvious answer is you put it at the beginnings and endings. And then you use the middles, you know, whether it's of a sentence, paragraph, section, or whole piece, you use the middles as kind of the bridges that help get the reader from the beginning to end. But, but really the, the critical, critical stuff is how do you greet the reader? How do you take the reader in and orient the reader to whatever it is you're trying to convey? And then how do you leave them or kind of push them on to the next stage of the journey? And, uh, you know, my program, we, we develop that in, in great detail and we apply it to every level of writing. And it's a very simple trick that can really transform writing, you know, really in a matter of an hour or two. It's the old uh, newspaper rule, don't bury the lead. Don't bury the lead. Get right to it and get right to it with some energy and some intrigue. Charlie, thank you. Before I let you go, tell our listeners what the best way is to get in touch. Well, you can go to uh, one of two websites, either theelementsofwriting.com or writingwebinars.com. And there are places on both of those websites to reach me. There's emails, there's phone numbers, all that stuff. So just go to one of the websites, theelementsofwriting.com or writingwebinars.com. Charlie, thank you so much. You've provided us with a wealth of information, and I'm sure I speak for all of our listeners when I say that it's much appreciated. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate the conversation. My pleasure. This is Bruce Hurwitz. Thank you for listening, and have a safe and prosperous week.